The passage that was read to us earlier from the, from the book of Samuel has a, it has a bit of humor in it if you slow it down and think about it for a little bit. And David is having an evening where he's feeling pretty confident. He is at rest from his enemies, and he's feeling in control. You know, I kind of picture him with his feet up in his study, you know, maybe with uh, his favorite beverage. Oh, I'm going to stop now. I hate it when pastors make it seem like that there's no cultural distance between. I don't know what he was doing, okay? I'm tempted to say maybe he has a cigar and watching ESPN. I won't say that, but I just did. But I don't know what he was doing, but he was feeling confident, and the text tells us that. That, you know, he is feeling pretty confident. In fact, he's feeling so confident and so good that he thinks to himself, you know what? I've got it pretty good. God, he's done a lot for me, and I'm going to build a temple for him. That's what he says. Now, Nathan, the prophet, not in his finest moment as a prophet, he's supposed to be the oracle of God. But at this point, Nathan just, you know, acts like a yes man. And and, and Nathan says to David when he says this, he says, yes, yep, boss, great idea, do it. God is in this. Go for it. And then everybody falls asleep. And that night, God comes to Nathan and wakes him up. And basically says to Nathan, come on, Nathan. You are a prophet, not a yes man. You are supposed to wait and say what I want you to say. And here's what I want you to say. Tell David, no thanks. I don't want a house. In fact, tell him that I will build him a house instead. The longer I live the more I find this phrase on my lips as an answer to any number of well-meaning questions. The phrase, I don't know. It's complicated. (laughs) I don't know. It's complicated. And this little episode with David, Nathan, and God foreshadows what will be a very complicated relationship between God's people And the temple that Solomon will eventually build. Provocatively, the Old Testament professor John Goldingay writes of what just went on there. That God comes to Nathan and says, Excuse me, Nathan. You know this house is for me to live in, right? Do you think that perhaps I should be consulted about it? Actually, I don't care too much for houses. I like being on the move. Golding A goes on to say, God's problem with us is that we like to tie God down. Keep God under our control. We don't want God on the loose, but God likes being on the loose. Golding A goes on to suggest that God accommodates himself to the splendor of a physical temple in the same way that he accommodates himself to Israel's desire for a king. I'll quote Golden Gate again real quick. When God agrees to the building of a temple, it has a similar significance to God's agreeing that Israel should have kings 
God doesn't really want it, but God will let us have our way, end quote. <laughs> like I said, it's complicated, right? <laughs> but doesn't our experience teach us that God is always accommodating to us? Working in our midst to clean up the messes that we make when we insist on taking matters into our own hands. I don't know about you, but that's my experience when I'm honest with myself. The people will eventually turn the monarchy into a self-serving, power-abusing institution that does not reflect the love of the creator God Similarly, the temple will become a symbol of nationalism, religious pride, and exclusivism. And this is very obvious when we think about it in the, in, you know, and see it through the lens of Jesus' interactions with the temple in the Gospels. As he exposes the temple as a power symbol that props up illegitimate and corrupt religious leaders. But what comes into focus really clearly after the resurrection is that all of Jesus' talk that pointed to him taking the place of the temple, he really meant it. He really meant it. And, And he meant even more than that, as we read in Ephesians this morning, that all of us together with Jesus as a worshiping community, we are the dwelling place of God on earth. We are the dwelling place of God on earth. A staggering revelation, and it should cause chills to run up and down our spines. But at the same time, perhaps our first question to ourselves when we realize the gravitas of being God's dwelling place, perhaps the first question we should ask is this one. How do we think of God dwelling with us? Do we think of God dwelling with us from the perspective of how God defines it? Or do we think about how God dwells with us from the perspective of how we want to define it? Remember, the struggle from the beginning, as shown in the reading from Samuel, the struggle with the language of household and temple was a struggle with how God desires to be with his people He has his own ideas, that much is clear, and they are not our ideas. We should be on notice that God's presence with us brings with it God's welcome, which is for all people and all kinds of people. Jews and Gentiles are joined together to make a new humanity. The reason Paul is writing about this, not just in Ephesians, but in, in, in almost all of his writings in the New Testament, the reason he's writing about this and reminding God's people of the wonder of being the temple of God and being a house for all people is because Jews uh, who convert to Christianity, a lot of them don't like that idea. And they tried to work against it. And Gentile Christians, just as soon as they got some power, we're quick to return the favor. Now that should give us pause. The very thing that early believers resisted is what Paul says is supremely beautiful. A picture of a new humanity as diverse as we can imagine, all being transformed into the image of Christ in our unique personalities. 
What can distort that beautiful image, though, is our desire to define for God how and with whom God will dwell. I find it so intriguing that the first time there's a mention of a human being wanting to build God a temple, God says, I'm going to build a temple for you. (laughs) I don't want you to do it. Another example of our desire to define how God dwells with us shows up in our capitulation to the spirit of our age that urges us to seek spiritual experiences that are very individualistic. But individualistic in a way that suggests that that we tend to value our own spiritual experiences as somehow the most pure way to experience God. Now don't get me wrong. I firmly believe that devotional life individually for each of us in the presence of God is indispensable to cultivating a life of prayer and listening to God. But I also firmly believe from our text this morning, from the whole arc of Scripture, that those individual experiences are never meant to crowd out regular public worship of God done together as people who are being reconciled to one another through the gospel in spite of our desire not to be reconciled to each other. These relationships that we cultivate, these relationships of reconciliation are pictured as Jew and Gentile in the Ephesians passage this morning. They exist only because of God's welcome and only because of our response to God's welcome on God's terms. And when we respond to God's welcome on God's terms, we tell a very important story of hope to a world that is ever increasingly drawn towards tribalism and the life of the echo chamber. We tell that story when we acknowledge and repent of our desire to portray God's presence with us as our own doing. When Nathan the prophet spoke not as a royal soothsayer, but as a true oracle of God, he warned David and us, we don't build a home for God. God builds a home for us. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.